welcome to Infinite Cast, a pod jest. Help me. <laughs> help, help, help Molly. Help me. Uh, so today's uh, going to be a bit of a, a frantic episode because uh, we're, we're getting ready to leave on a road trip. Frantic, tick, 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 tock, tick. <laughs> uh, so I might be uh, packing a little in the background, but I promise you I'm listening if you don't hear me like chuckling into the micro- microphone. It's a little uh, rumpled, rumpled clothes a- ASMR. Yeah, rumpled cr- as long, clothes As ASMR. long as you listen. And if I can tell you're not paying attention, I'll just go, hey, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you want to start reading? Where Let's did we leave go. off? Are we you still... know, we're right in the middle of all this uh, AA oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. We, we, had just, we had just gotten the realization that all our friends are together uh, in one place. Speaking of AA, doing, I'm doing a girls rewatch uh, for the first time. Girls. Goyles. HBO's Goyles. And uh, there's a, a sort of a throwaway line where there's a, a J- Jessa, the British bohemian one, is has a babysitting job. And the man she's babysitting for is hanging out with his brother or friend who just came back from rehab. And she like mm-hmm. winks at him and says, don't leave before the miracle. Don't leave before and the miracle. And I did not realize at the time that I saw that show that that is an AA uh, slogan. Does that imply that she has done AA? That implies that she has at least been to a meeting. All right. Which, it, uh, th- which implies a whole world of her. Yeah. Uh. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Anyway, shall we? Shall we? Yeah, that shows better on the rewatch, I think. Yeah. And a lot of the, hidden gems. And with the uh, the benefit of time, it was so obnoxiously of its moment that you it was co- too courant. Uh, that you kind of that I think it kind of uh, uh, obfuscated that it was actually a pretty pretty well done well observation, done, well well written, um, well made show. I don't want to say justice for Lena Dunham because she, she doesn't need it. She doesn't need it. And also she is gen- genuinely seems to be an insane person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Uh, good job with girls. Yes. Good job. All right. Shall Ready? We? Yeah. But it's funny what they'll find funny. AA is at Boston meetings listening. The next advanced basics guy summoned by their gleamingly bald Western wear chairman to speak is dreadfully transparently unfunny. Painfully new, but pretending to be at ease, to be an old hand, desperate to amuse and impress them. The guy's got the sort of professional background where he's used to trying to impress gatherings of persons. He's dying to be liked up there. He's performing. The white flag crowd can see all this. Even the true morons among them see right through the guy. This is not a regular audience. A Boston AA is very sensitive to the presence of ego. When the new guy introduces himself and makes an ironic gesture and says... I'm told I've been given the gift of desperation. I'm looking for the exchange window. It's so clearly unspontaneous, rehearsed, plus commits the subtle but cardinal message offense of appearing to deprecate the program rather than the self. Uh, that just a few polite titters resound and people shift in their seats with a slight but signal discomfort. The worst punishment Gately's seen inflicted on a commitment speaker is when the host crowd gets embarrassed for him. Speakers who are accustomed to figuring out what an audience wants to hear and then supplying it find out quickly that this particular audience does not want to be supplied with what someone else thinks it wants. Uh, Talk about irony versus sincerity. Uh, It's another conundrum Gately finally ran out of cerebral steam on. 
part of finally getting comfortable in Boston AA is just finally running out of steam in terms of trying to figure stuff like this out because it literally makes no sense. Close to 200 people all punishing somebody by getting embarrassed for him, killing him by empathetically dying right there with him, for him up there at the podium. The applause when this guy's done has the relieved feel of a fist unclenching and their cries of keep coming are so sincere it's almost painful. But then, in equally paradoxical contrast, have a look at the next advanced basic speaker. This tall, baggy sack of a man, also painfully new, but this poor bastard here completely and openly nerve-wracked, wobbling his way up to the front, his face shiny with sweat and his talk full of blank cunctations and disassociated leaps as the guy speaks with terrible, abashed chagrin about trying to hang on to his job out there as his AM hangovers became more and more debilitating until he finally got so shaky and aphasiac he just couldn't bear to even face the customers who'd come knocking on his department's door. He was, from 0800 to 1600 hours, the complaint department of Filene's department store. You ever go to have a Filene's? Oh, sorry, I didn't realize. I'm familiar with the concept of Filene's. We had a like, Filene's and then it closed. I believe at Macy's took over. Was that different from Filene's basement? basement? Uh, or maybe the basement was like the, the second. Yeah, hand. I think that was you, the suit. You know how there's like the Nordstrom Rack? The rat, Nordstrom, Nordy's Rack. Nordstrom Rack. Nordstrom Rack. Union Square. Yeah, I think it's like that. Filene's right, basement. Basement, Filene's. Uh, what I did finally, Jesus, I don't know where I got such a stupid idea from. I brought this hammer in from home and brought it in and kept it right there under my desk on the floor. And when somebody knocked at the door, I just, I'd sort of dive onto the floor and crawl under the desk and grab up the hammer. And I'd start into pounding on the leg of the desk real hard, like whackada whackada, like I was fixing something down there. And if they opened the door finally and came in anyhow, or came in to bitch about me not opening the door, I'd just stay out of sight under there, pounding away like hell. And I'd yell out, I was going to be a moment, just a moment, emergency repairs, be with them momentarily. <laughs> I guess you can I guess you can guess how all that pounding felt, you know, under there, what with a big head I had every morning. I'd hide under there and pound and pound with the hammer till they finally gave up and went away. I'd watch from under the desk and tell when they finally went away from I could see their feet from under the desk. And about how the hiding under the desk and pounding thing worked incredibly enough for almost the whole last year of his drinking, which ended around this past Labor Day when one vindictive complainant finally figured out where in Filene's to go to complain about the complaint department. <laughs> the white flaggers all fell about. They were totally pleased and amused. The crocodiles removed their cigars and roared and wheezed and stomped both feet on the floor and showed scary teeth, everyone roaring with identification and pleasure. This even though, as the speaker's confusion at their delight openly betrays, the story wasn't meant to be one bit funny, it was just the truth. Gately's found it's got to be the truth is the thing. He's trying hard to really hear the speakers. He's stayed in the habit he's developed as an Ennett resident of sitting right up where he could see dentition and pores with zero obstructions or heads between him and the podium. So the speaker fills his whole vision, which makes it easier to really hear, trying to concentrate on receiving the message instead of brooding on that odd old dark moment of aphasiac terror with this veiled like pseudo-intellectual type girl who was probably just in some sort of complex denial or whatever <laughs> doubtlessly grim place he feels like he uh, knows that smooth, echoless, slight southern voice from. 
The thing is, it has to be the truth to really go over here. It can't be a calculated crowd pleaser, and it has to be the truth unslanted, unfortified, and maximally unironic. Mm-hmm. An ironist in a Boston AA meeting is a witch in church. Irony-free zone. Same with sly, disingenuous, uh, ma- sly, disingenuous, manipulative pseudo-sincerity. Sincerity with an ulterior motive is something these tough, ravaged people know and fear, all of them trained to remember the coyly sincere, ironic, self-presenting fortifications they'd had to construct in order to carry on out there under the ceaseless neon bottle. This doesn't mean you can't pay empty or hypocritical lip service, however, paradoxically enough. The desperate, newly sober white flaggers are always encouraged to invoke and pay empty lip service to slogans they don't yet understand or believe, e.g. easy does it and turn it over and one day at a time. It's called fake it till you make it, itself an (laughs) oft-invoked slogan. Everybody on a commitment who gets up publicly to speak starts out saying he's an alcoholic, says says it whether he believes he is yet or not. Then everybody up there says how grateful he is to be sober today and how great it is to be active and out on a commitment with his group, even if he's not grateful or pleased about it at all. That's interesting, the thing about having to fake it till you make it, including faking believing that you're an alcoholic until you believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You're encouraged to keep saying stuff like this until you start to believe it, just like if you ask somebody with serious sober time how long you'll have to keep schlepping to all these goddamn meetings. <laughs> He'll smile that infuriating smile and tell you just until you start to want to go to all these goddamn meetings. <laughs> there are some definite cultish brainwashy elements to the AA program. The term program itself resonates darkly for those who fear getting brainwashed. (laughs) And Gately tries to be candid with his residents re this issue. But he also shrugs and tells them that by the end of his oral narcotics and burglary careers, he'd sort of decided the old brain needed a good scrub and soak anyway. He says he pretty much held his brain out and told Pat Montesian and Gene M to go ahead and wash away. But he tells his residents he's thinking now that the program might be more like deprogramming than actual washing, considering the psychic job the disease's spider has done on them all. Gately's most marked progress in turning his life around in sobriety, besides the fact that he no longer drives off into the night with other people's merchandise, (laughs) is that he tries to be just about as verbally honest as possible at almost all times now, without too much calculation about how a listener is going to feel about what he says. Do we know if Gately's getting paid by Ennett House? Um, is it like a real job? It is a job. Okay. He gets paid a teen, a weensy But he also gets amount. room and board. And he gets room and board. Yeah. It's in the same, I think it's it, in the same kind of category as like the humility jobs that um, all yeah. these people have where you get paid beans, but uh, yeah, I'm just wondering. Uh, you don't want for anything. Yeah, I was just trying to be clear like what his whole life life is because i know that he's like working there and being like basically a camp counselor but i don't know if it's like yeah supporting him <laughs> yeah right i mean it is it, it yeah. is literally supporting him because i mean what what is his life he he hangs out with residents all day he goes to meetings yeah. and uh that's it <laughs> keeps people in line yeah generally b's a big is a big brother mm-hmm. um This is harder than it sounds, but so that's why on commitments, sweating at the podium as only a large man can sweat, his thing today is that he always says he's (laughs) lucky to be sober today instead of that he's grateful today because he admits that the former is always true every day, even though a lot of the time he still doesn't feel grateful, more like shocked that this thing seems to work, plus a lot of the time also ashamed and depressed about how he spent over half his life 
and scared he might be permanently brain damaged or retarded from substances. <laughs> Sorry. Plus also usually without any sort of clue about where he's headed in sobriety or what he's supposed to be doing or about really anything at all except that he's not at all keen to be back out th there behind any bars again in a hurry. Ferocious Francis G likes to punch Gately's shoulder and tell him he's right where he's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you cry. So, but also know that causal attribution, like irony, is death, speaking on commitments wise. Crocodile's temple veins will actually stand out and pulse with irritation if you start trying to blame your disease on some cause or other. And everybody with any kind of sober time will pale and writhe in their chair. See, e.g., the white flag audience's discomfort for when the skinny, hard-faced, advanced basics girl who gets up to speak next to last posits that she was an eight-bag-a-day dope fiend because, at 16, she'd had to become a stripper and semi-whore at the famous Naked Eye Club out on Route, route, route 1. A number of male eyes in the audience flash with sudden recognition and despite all willed restraint automatically do that crawly north to south thing down her body and Gately can see every ashtray on the table shake from the force of Joel V's shudder. <laughs> and then, but that she'd had to become a stripper at 16 because she'd had to run away from her foster home in Saugus, Massachusetts and that she'd had to run away from home because... Here, at least some of the room's discomfort is from the fact that the audience can tell the etiology is going to get head-clutchingly prolix and involved. This girl has not yet learned to keep it simple uh, because, well, to begin with, she'd been adopted and the foster parents also had their own biological daughter and the biological daughter had, from birth, been totally paralyzed and retarded and catatonic. Oh, no, this section. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, c content warning for all kinds of content. And the foster mother in the household was, as Joel V put it later to Gately, crazy as a fucking mud bug and was in total denial about her biological daughters being a vegetable and not only insisted on treating the invertebrate biological daughter like a valid member of the chordate phylum, but also insisted that the father and the adopted daughter also treat it as normal and undamaged and made the adopted daughter share a bedroom with it bring it along to slumber parties. The speaker uses the term it for the invertebrate sister and also to tell the truth uh, uses the phrase drag it along rather than bring it along, which Gately wisely doesn't dwell over. And even to school with her and softball practice and the hairdressers and campfire girls, etc., where at whatever place she dragged it along to, it would lie in a heap drooling and incontinent under exquisite mother-bought fashions specifically altered for atrophy and top-shelf Lancome cosmetics that looked just lurid on it, and with only the whites of its eyes showing, with fluid dribbling from its mouth and elsewhere, and making unspeakable gurgling noises, completely pale and moist and stagnant, and then when the adopted daughter now speaking turned 15, the barabidly Catholic wacko foster mother even announced that, okay, now that the adopted daughter was 15, she could go out on dates, but only as long as it got to come along too. In other words, that the only dates the 15-year-old adopted daughter could go out on were double dates with it and whatever submammalian escort the speaker could root up for it, and how this sort of stuff went on and on, and how the nightmarishness of its continual pale, soggy ubiquitousness in her young life would alone be more than sufficient to cause and explain the speaker's later drug addiction she feels. But that also so it happened that the foster family's quiet, smiling patriarch 
who worked 0900 to 2100 as a claims processor for Aetna, it turned out that the cheerful, smiling foster father actually made the wacko foster mother look like a door column of stability by comparison, because there turned out to be things about the biological daughter's utter paralytic pliability and catatonic inability to make anything except unspeakable gurgly noises that the smiling father found greatly to a certain very sick advantage. The speaker says she has trouble openly discussing still, even at 31 months sober in AA. Yikes being as as yet still so retroactively wounded and hurting from it, but so in some that she'd been ultimately forced to run away from the adopted adoptive foster Saugus home and so become a naked eye stripper and so become a raging dope fiend, not as in so many ununique cases because she had been incestuously diddled, but because she'd been abusively forced to share a bedroom with a drooling invertebrate who by 14 was itself getting incestuously diddled on a nightly basis by a smiling biological claims processor of a father who the speaker pauses to summon courage, who apparently liked to pretend it was Raquel Welch, the f- the former celluloid sex goddess of the father's glandular heyday, and he even called it Raquel in moments of incestuous extremity, and how the New England summer, the speaker turned 15 and had to start dragging it along on double dates and then having to be sure to drag it back home again by 2300 hours, so it had plenty of time to be incestuously diddled. That summer, the smiling, quiet foster father even bought, had found somewhere, a cheesy rubber Raquel Welch full-head pull-on mask with hair, and would now nightly come in the dark and it lift its limp, soft head up and struggle and lug to get the mask on and the relevant holes aligned for air, and then would diddle his way to extremity and cry out Raquel, and then but he would just clamber out and off and leave the dark bedroom smiling and sated and lots of times leave the mask still on it. Uh, like uh, He'd like forget or not care just as he seemed oblivious, but for the grace of God, in a way, to the fetally curled, skinny form of the adopted daughter lying perfectly still in the next bed in the dark, pretending to sleep, silent, shell-breathing, with her hard, skinny, wounded, pre-addiction face turned to the wall in the room's next bed, her bed, the one without the collapsible, crib-like hospital railings along the sides. The audience is clutching its collective head by this time only partly in empathy as the speaker specifies how she was de facto emotionally all but like forced to flee and strip and swan dive into the dark spiritual anesthesia of active drug addiction in a dysfunctional attempt to psychologically deal with one particular seminally scarring night of abject horror, the indescribable horror of the way it, the biological daughter, had looked up at her, the speaker, one particular final time on this one particular uh, one of the frequent occasions the speaker had to get out of bed after the father had come and gone and tiptoe over to its bed and lean over the cold metal hospital railing and remove the rubber Raquel Welch mask and replace it in a bedside drawer under some back issues of ramparts and common wheel. After carefully closing its splayed legs and pulling down its variously stained designer nighty, all of which she made sure to do when the father didn't bother to at night so that the wacko foster mother wouldn't come in in the a.m. and find it in a rubber Raquel Welch mask with its nighty hiked up and its legs agape and put two and two together and get all kinds of deep denial shattered about why the foster father always went around the foster house with a silent, creepy smile and flip out and make the invertebrate catatonic father invertebrate catatonic's father stopped diddling it because the speaker figured if the foster father had to stop diddling it it probably didn't take sally jeff jesse raphael msw to figure out who was then probably going to get promoted to the role of raquel over in the next bed 
The silent, smiling claims processor father never once acknowledged the adopted daughter's little post-incestuous tidyings up. It's the kind of sick, unspoken complicity characteristic of wildly dysfunctional families, confides the speaker, who's also proud, she says, to be a member of a splinter 12-step fellowship, an adult child thing type thing called wounded, hurting, inadequately nurtured, but ever-recovering survivors. <laughs> oh, God. This is like making me sick, honestly. Yeah, this but is, this is this pretty rough. Yeah, I, I did not realize that this was coming so soon. I, I'm sorry. Uh, but so she says it was this one particular night soon after she turned 16, after the father had come and gone and uncaringly just left its mask on again and over to its bedside. The speaker had to creep in the dark to tidy up. But, and but this time it turned out there was a problem with the Raquel Welch's masks, long auburn horsehair tresses having gotten twisted and knotted into the semi-living strands of its own elaborately over-moosed coiffure, and the adopted daughter had to activate the perimeter of lights on its bedside table's many-bulbed vanity mirror to try to see to try to get the Raquel Welch wig untangled, and when she finally got the mask off, with the vanity mirror still blazing away, the speaker says how she was forced to gaze for the first time on its lit-up, paralytic, post-diddle face, and how the expression thereon was most assuredly quite enough to force anybody with an operant limbic system, which takes us to end note 142. Uh, the speaker doesn't actually use the term theory thereon, most assuredly, or operant limbic system, though she really had before said chordate phylum. Okay. <laughs> Back to the text, to leg it right out of her dysfunctional foster family's home, nay, and the whole community of Saugus, Massachusetts, now homeless and scarred and forced by dark psychic forces straight to root one's infamous gauntlet of neon-lit depravity and addiction to try to forget, Rasa the tabula, wipe the memory totally out, numb it with opiates. Voice trembling, she accepts the chairperson's proffered bandana hanky and blows her nose one nostril at a time and says she can almost see it all over again, its expression, in the vanity's lights only its eyes white showed, and while its utter catatonia and paralysis prevented the contraction of its luridly rouged face's circumoral muscles into any conventional human facial-type expression, nevertheless some hideously mobile and expressive layer in the moist regions below real people's expressive facial layer, some slow-twitch layer unique to it, had blindly contracted somehow, to gather the blank, soft cheese of its face into the sort of pinched, gasping look of neurologic concentration that marks a carnal bliss beyond smiles or sighs. Its face looked postcoital, sort of the way you'd imagine the vacuole and optica of a protozoan-looking postcoital after it shuddered and shot its monocellular load into the cold waters of some really old sea. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> this is fucked up. This, I hate this. Its facial expression was, in a word, the speaker says, uh, unspeakably, unforgettably ghastly and horrid and scarring. It was also the exact same expression as the facial expression on the stone-robed lady's face in this one untitled photo of some Catholic statue that hung the photo in the dysfunctional household's parlor right above the little teak table where the dysfunctional foster mother kept her beads and hours and lay breviary. This photo of a statue of a woman whose stone robes were half hiked up and wrinkled in the most god-awfully, sensually prurient way. The woman reclined against uncut rock, 
her robes hiked and one stone foot hanging off the rock as her legs hung parted, with a grinning little totally psychotic-looking cherub-type angel standing on the lady's open thighs and pointing a bare arrow at where the stone robe hid her cold tit, the woman's face upturned and cocked and pinched into the exact same shuddering protozoan look beyond pleasure or pain. The wacko foster mom knelt daily to that photo in a beaded and worshipful posture and also required daily that it be hoisted by the adopted daughter from its never-mentioned wheelchair and held under its arms and lowered so as to approximate the same knelt devotion to the photo. And while it gurgled and its head lolled, the speaker had gazed at the photo with a nameless revulsion each morning as she held its dead slumped weight and tried to keep its chin off its chest and now was being forced into seeing by mirror light the exact same expression on the face of a catatonic who'd just been incestuously, incestuously diddled. An expression at once reverent and greedy on a face connected by dead hair to the slack and flapping rubber visage of an old sex goddess's empty face. And to make a long story short, the speaker says, not trying to be funny as the flaggers can see, the traumatically scarred adopted girl had legged it from the bedroom and foster house into the brooding North Shore teen runaway night and had stripped and semi-hoard and Ivy injected her way uh, all the way to that standard two-option addicted cliff edge, hoping only to forget. That's what caused it, she said. That's what she's trying to recover from, a day at a time. And she's sure grateful to be here with her group today, sober and courageously remembering. And newcomers should definitely keep coming. As she's telling what she sees as ideological truth, even though the monologue seems sincere and unaffected and at least a B-plus on the overall <laughs> AA story lucidity scale, faces in the hall are averted and heads clutched and postures uneasily shifted in empathetic distress at the look-what-happened-to-poor-me invitation implicit in the tale. The talk's tone of self-pity itself less offensive, even though plenty of these white flaggers, Gately knows, had personal childhoods that made this girl's look like a day at Six Flags over the Poconos. Oh, God. That the subcurrent of explanation, an appeal to exterior cause that can slide in the addictive mind so insidiously into excuse that any causal attribution in, in, is in Boston AA feared, shunned, punished by empath empathic distress. The why of the disease is a labyrinth. It is strongly suggested all AA's boycott inhabited as the maze is by the twin minotaurs of why me and why not, a.k.a. self-pity and denial, two of the smiley-faced sergeant-at-arms more fearsome Eds de camp. The Boston AA in here that protects against a return to out there is not about explaining what caused your disease. It's about a goofily simple practical recipe for how to remember you've got the disease day by day and how to treat the disease day by day, how to keep the seductive ghost of a bliss long absconded from baiting you and hooking you and pulling you back out and eating your heart raw and, if you're lucky, eliminating your map for good. So no whys or wherefores allowed. In other words, check your head at the door. Though it can't be conventionally enforced, this, Boston AA's real root axiom is almost classically authoritarian, maybe even proto-fascist. Some ironist who decamped back out there and left his meager effects to be bagged and tossed by staff into the Ennett House attic had, all the way back in the year of the Tuck's medicated pad, permanently engraved his tribute to AA's real prime directive with a rosewood-handled boot knife in the plastic seat of the five-man men's room's commode. Do not ask why if you don't want to die. Do like you're told if you want to get old. Which takes us to end note 143. Uh, sick. Uh, it's uh, your is spelled why, the wrong. wrong way. And don't ha doesn't have a uh, apostrophe. 
probably a good place to call it. Yeah, that's a bit of a a, a bit of a short s- segment, but who boy? Oh my, quite harrowing. God, blah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny at the end of this long AA segment that, despite covering the um, you know the the dramatic and harrowing process of addiction recovery is is somewhat rollicking. I mean, it's 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 more you know kind of it it has a fun. Uh, communal element to it and you uh, you know see all the characters again and, and kind of get this like uh, s- sense of uh, you know everybody suffering but suffering together and then of course it has to be ended with something like completely uh, a, d- a downer you know I don't know how you come up with a story like that the, yeah I know the Raquel Welsh mascot it's all the the um I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the empty visage of a dead uh, sex uh, symbol or whatever. Yeah. Just like, I mean, there's so much. The ecstasy of St. Teresa, of course, of comes course. back into play. Yeah. Ma- the idea of masks comes back after the te- t- video funny. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what you do. That is like a very like writerly thing of, of forcing you to imagine him sitting down and being like, so what's the most awful thing I what's can imagine? Mo- let's, yeah, just sitting down at his uh, his computer just being like all right it's time to write something really fucked, fucked up. up yeah um, oh, this, just getting off on it oh this is so fucked it's up so oh, sick. i'm writing this so i'm writing this fucked up thing so well but the the funny thing the, the one of the sort of jokes of that section that i actually think is funny is that the revulsion by the white flaggers is not because of the story or the way she or, or you know anything any of the details it's because she says the word because Mm-hmm. She could ju- she could just tell the story and just be like, "This is what happened to me." Yeah. But instead, the She's thing that like, horrifies this why, them is this is why, why I have an addiction, and that's that's and no, that's no. what bridge too far for these yeah. people. And, and then also that little thing at the end of be- being like, honestly, this story isn't considering some of the other stories we've heard here. It's not that bad. Yeah. That uh, yeah. The uh, <laughs> the extended gr- grotesque uh, continues. The Especially fi- finding out the little details, like that her bed has uh has side railings, yeah, the little guardrails, and that she's in a a wheelchair, and that her mom does her makeup every day. Yeah, or I guess you know it. That's the other disturbing thing is like uh, you having to put that distance there. But yeah, yeah. that that line of being like um at the very end of being like some of the stories we've heard here will make her stories seem like six flags, six over flags the over the Poconos. <laughs> Oh my God! I uh, I will have to put in the description that there's some uh, exp- uh, sort of. I don't know if you're this deep into the show. I guess you, you can basically uh, re- realize that in reading Infinite Jest, you'll you will check off pretty much every box of uh, of, of content a content warning. warning. Yeah, gang's all here. Uh, well, we're out of the AA section section now, right? Yeah, we're we going have- back to fucking steeply after this. Oh, uh, back steeply to steeply and Marath. All right, well, sorry. I hope that they're. I hope that Steeply and Marath are out of their like weird philosophical discussion. We actually get some momentum of what's going on in in, in their plot. <laughs> I'm, I'm. You can't see, but I'm making a face uh, as if to say I'm not sure. <laughs> um, uh. Yeah, I. I don't know. The, 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 that's tough, man. The fucking protozoan shooting its load. Oh god. Into some really like old old sea yeah the like how do you come up with that that is just truly that's just like some sick shit yeah i don't know what else to say <laughs> yeah yuck oh god um and then the so here here's my other question is just thinking about 
Don's uh Don talking kind of about the questioning of like what he's doing or where he's going and, mm-hmm. and Feroz's friend just punching him in the shoulder and saying you're exactly where you need to be. And again, the AA as life metaphor of like yeah. uh, all you know, all these people are addicted to substances and having those questions. But I have those questions too. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> what am I where am I supposed what am I supposed to be doing next? It's like, I don't know. I guess I'm probably right where I'm supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, you're right where you're supposed to be. Don't ask why. Don't ask why if you don't want to die. Yeah. <laughs> just keep, just keep <laughs> no going. No thoughts, thing, head empty. One thing after another. One, that's one, one, one day, day at, at a time. time. Yeah. That, that's the ultimate uh, cliche is that the stuff that works for AA, works unfortunately, for just might work for just general life stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One day at a time. One day at a time. Keep coming back. Don't quit before the miracle. <laughs> don't. Don't leave five minutes for the miracle. There's uh, a meme I'm I'm familiar with that's uh don't don't kill yourself because something really R word might happen. <laughs> that's, yes, that's the same version of uh of this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I I agree with that. That's that's how I'm feeling today. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> one day at a time. Oh God, I mean that. If you're, if you're listening to this. One day at a time. I mean, that's uh, that whole segment is just going to be swirling in my head. I'm all day. so sorry. I know. I'm like, fe- I was already feeling a little queasy from from my hangover, and now <laughs> I feel even queasier. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm going to need to do something to. Uh, we'll have to do a palate cleanse of some, some sort. Some kind of palate cleanse. We need to watch like SpongeBob or something. <laughs> <laughs> SpongeBob is the ultimate. Uh, open up the brain and yeah. scrub it out. I need. Yeah, I need to like dump dump some some soapy water, some suds. You, do you feel like you've been uh, trauma dumped on? <laughs> yes. The, uh, too much trauma dumping. Uh, what do you, is, do you, did you not have the emotional capacity yeah, to I don't deal have with emotion, this right now? Yeah, is there someone capacity. else? Well, that is, I mean, that is to. the funny thing about considering that AA stuff is just having to go and listen to people's. I, I mean, I think that that is why that has to be in there to really hammer home that that part of AA is just accepting other people's traumas. The entire yeah. time, and then also the the so the other part of it is accepting other people's traumas, and then going, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> well, yeah, I I think that's the the two sided coin. I just yeah. I remember when Jeff Tweedy in his memoir went uh, to a pretty a non fancy rehab, um, like a state a state funded rehab for uh, his prescription pill addiction, and he was basically feeling bad because he's like a. a pretty uh successful white guy with a problem and he's in there with you know black people who uh were like literally on the street or whatever Mm -hmm. and he said as much in like a meeting and he said like there was some like big black dude who was just like pain is pain like we are like everyone just be everyone is hurting in the same way you can't make comparisons yeah Uh, and it's also you know feeling bad because you're special is like what you think you're special because you're special (laughs) like (laughs) well that's that's all just that's illusions getting in the way of what that's not gonna fucking help you at all all you do is feel guilty about how you don't have it as bad as other people yeah and i i think that's that is somewhat evident in that story is that both i mean you could argue you hear a little bit more about don gately's background because you argue that he had it worse than her like yes and no because mm-hmm. it's a unique it's a totally unique uh form of kind of child torture that uh ex- it all expresses in the same way just a, b- a bunch of uh addicts in a room right much to consider <sighs> much to think about uh i'll let's leave it at this on this short abbreviated episode i think we brought up last time that somebody mentioned that john cena should play uh don gailey 
and that we both think that that's a great idea. Agreed. I looked into it even further, uh, and uh, doubly, um, to just to support it, I, I found out. I don't know how well known this is that John Cena is in fact a mass hole. Yeah, uh, I believe like a central mass guy, and so I think that even more uh, that that he would bring the right energy. We also his, agreed his big square ahead. We his, agree- his, agreed that it's not size, whatever, a big guy, yeah. big guy, smaller guy, whatever. Square head is very important. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a big guy. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. Uh, but you know, I don't know if he's like hugely tall, but yeah, big square head. That right combination of uh, could maybe be be scary, but also kind of dumb and empathetic yeah you know? has um you know v- maybe vi- violence in his uh his past and uh goodness in his heart yeah violence in his past and good you know what that's a great description of john cena is that he seems like he has a uh, violence in his past and goodness in his future you know <laughs> it, perpetually yeah john cena <laughs> what's the oh my god you look just like Shakira. No, wait. It's Catherine Zeta. Zeta. Actually, my name's, my name's John Cena. Cena. <laughs> 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 All right. That's a good enough palette. If you've, nobody's ever seen that that video, I recommend YouTubing like Marina the Diamonds John Cena. I think it's like Marina John the Diamonds Cena. John Cena. You won't regret it. <laughs> well, let's look that up right after this. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's the palate cleanser. Yeah, that's the palate cleanser. That's the, the, the drill to my temple that I need to do for, to, that's, to that's wipe the, out uh, that. Um, uh, who's the guy in No Country for Old Men? That's, oh, yeah, yeah. That's the, the, uh, the cattle driver. The, the cattle killer to the forehead that you need to. All right. Let's sign off day. so I can publish this episode before people come over and then we have to leave. Merci. Au revoir. Bye bye.